This is Toby Morrell from Emory, and you're listening to The New Scene. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The New Scene. I am your host, Keith, and we're back with a brand new episode, and I've got a great one for you this week. We have Jay Moss. He's a founding member of Defeater. He's an acclaimed producer and engineer, and we cover it all. We cover his time in Defeater, learning to engineer under Kurt Ballou at God City, recording the last Bane record, the new mastering software he developed. He's up to a lot. He's done a lot. He's doing a lot, and we're going to hear about all of it shortly. But first, here's how you can support me, The New Scene. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at New Scene Pod. We have a selection of shirts available over at Deathwish Inc. I've got a gaming Instagram and YouTube at New Scene Gaming. You can also follow me on Twitch at The New Scene. Also, don't forget to support Iodine Recordings. There were wires has a reunion gig coming up with Have a Nice Life at the Sinclair in Cambridge, Massachusetts. That show will be on April 28th, 2023. And, and it's all ages. Bring the kids, bring the family. Everyone should go check it out. There Were Wires are an awesome band. And they've been on this show. So if you haven't heard their episode, check out episode 55 of The New Scene. For more from Iodine Recordings, check them out on their Instagram at Iodine Recordings or the website at iodinerecords.com. Okay, so last week, Spotify wrapped, dropped, and I know Spotify is a bad company. They rip off artists, but look, they're the main platform right now, and I like to look at my wrapped. It's a good reminder of everything I listened to throughout the year, and when I looked at it, it reminded me of how much I love Greet Death, so I started listening to them again. I jumped back into the full length again. I got obsessed with the song, You're Gonna Hate What You've Done, again. So I've been re-listening to them and all of my other favorite music that I've listened to this entire year in preparation for our special bonus Best Records of 2022 episode. That's coming up in December. I don't know exactly when yet. But Casey from Iodine will be joining me and we'll be presenting to you our top 10 lists of the year. So you have that to look forward to. I'm excited. And in addition to the music Spotify, they also give me a Spotify wrapped for the podcast. And, you know, I'm aware of the reach of the show and all of that because I get statistics through our hosting website. But it really opened my eyes to some things, some pretty incredible statistics. The reach of the show is very far. The show is doing very well. So looking at all of that really gave me some encouragement to keep doing this thing, which I plan to do. But yeah, everything is going great here. Uh, it's been a very busy week. I've had more on-site assignments at work. You know, I'm slogging into Manhattan, downtown Manhattan to go to offices and then coming back home on the subway commuting. And it's not something I'm used to because I've been doing a lot of 
work from home for the last year, but it's good to get out. Uh, it's good to get into offices and talk to people and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, busy, but good. So make sure you check back in with me in segment three. I'll talk about how Thanksgiving went. I'll review Warzone 2. I've been playing that a lot. But right now, we are going to speak to Jay Moss. Enjoy. We are here now with Jay Moss. Jay, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. Yes, it's wonderful to have you here, Jay. You know, you've done a lot in your life, and we're going to talk about all of that. But first, I've got to ask you, how are you doing today? I'm, I'm good. Uh, today was very, very busy. But um, yeah, good. I'm working with an artist uh, that goes by the the name Mags, M.A.G.S. Um, and he's out from LA, and we're doing... Uh, a LP that's going to come out in 2023. So we just finished that. Well, I finished that and then I had another meeting and then I have, I, I scarfed a wrap like two seconds before doing this podcast and, but things are good. Things could be much worse. So yes. Yeah. Your day sounds like mine. I've had the craziest day. One of those days where everything is so busy. I just want to give up on everything. And uh, I usually eat, I make sure I eat an hour before I record this. That way I'm not all, my voice isn't all fucked up. Well, I ate one second before, so we'll see how my voice fares. Yours sounds great right now. No, thanks. <laughs> too sweet to me. Where are you based out of? I'm in Boston. Oh, okay. Did you grow up there too? Yeah. You know, I, I wasn't born here, but I did grow up here. Um, I was born in Seattle and I lived in LA for like the end of my single digit years, I guess we'll say. And then I moved to Boston or just north of Boston when I was 10. So that was 32 years ago now, which is mind blowing. So yeah, I'm, I'm still here. Uh, my mom brought me out here, but she's since back to Seattle, you know, I had a band and a girlfriend and a dudes I skateboarded with. And she asked me when I was 18, like, do you want to go back West? And I said, eh, I think I'll just kick it here. So that's what I've been doing. So you're 18 years old. Your family moves back to Seattle. You stayed in Boston. Yep. How did you 
do that? I mean, uh, just making it on your own at 18, that sounds pretty scary. I've never needed much. I mean, um, you know, I rented a room, got a job, um, played in my band and just sort of figured it out. Um, which is kind of cool. It's a little bit like, yeah, uh, I've just been out here doing my own thing for a long time. And I think like, you know, a lot of people probably, uh, most people I would say like figure things out when they have to. Talk about your place in music. I'm interested in how you came up and the bands you liked and, and the bands that had an impact on you. Because as we both know, Boston has a very diverse scene. No matter what scene you're looking at, of course it has a classic hardcore metallic metal scene and all that but i mean there's great rock that comes out of there it's got everything yeah thanks uh boston is 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 a weird place i mean growing up from the west coast uh doing my first 10 years on the west coast and then coming here um there's i don't know east coast is just a whole different animal and it definitely really shaped me and we were lucky i guess i was lucky you know around the time that i was starting like sort of my formative years really doing bands there was a great scene here um, when I was, I mean, I did bands, you know, in high school and stuff They did, they were just kind of like, you know, whatever we'd play our high school auditorium, nothing really happened, but I, I, <laughs> I failed English my junior year. So I had to go to summer school. I failed English my junior year because that's also when I got my driver's license. And I realized that, oh, I could just go to the skate park Tuesdays and Thursdays instead of going to school. My mom would never know the difference. And so I, <laughs> I um, <laughs> yeah, it's not, not, I'm not giving advice here. That's for sure. But I, um, I found myself in a situation where I could, uh, go skate Tuesdays and Thursdays, you know, Monday, like you don't miss Mondays cause, uh, things are typically due on Mondays. You don't miss Wednesdays because Wednesday might be a half day anyway. So that's just silly. And then Fridays, often we have tests and sometimes holidays fall on Mondays or Fridays. So those are also gimmies. So, uh, in all my wisdom, I decided I would not go to school <laughs> Tuesday or Thursday and I would skate. Um, and punk and skating and all that stuff was like really intertwined for me. Um, but <laughs> for those reasons, <laughs> can you believe it? I had to go to summer school in between junior year and senior year. And I went and, um, you know, I played guitar. I loved punk. I grew up on, I was straight edge. So, you know, I grew up on minor threat and I loved Fugazi. Um, you know, and, I mean, that was 97. So, we're talking like the big three on victory, right? We got like strife, earth crisis and, and snap case. So I'm just like, you know, a disciple of that world. And I was suffering through English class in summer school. And, uh, I saw this kid and he, um, at the time he, <laughs> he had a hemp necklace, which is sort of ironic and, and the beads on it. And it had three X's and I got enough courage. And I said, Hey, uh, you know, are you straight edge? You know? <laughs> and, uh, and he was like, yeah, are you? And I was like, yeah, I am. And I, I grew up in a really, really small town and this guy was like super intimidating to me, like gauged ears and stuff, you know? And, yeah. um, and he goes, you like Candiria? <laughs> and I was like, uh, I didn't, I didn't know who Candiria was at the time, but I definitely knew that I was supposed to like Candiria uh, based on how he asked the question. So I lied and I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I love Candiria. And, <laughs> and now important follow-up question. Did you eventually check out and like Candiria? Because they're so amazing. Yeah, I did do both things actually. Um, I did check out and like Candiria. So, uh, Thanks, Mark Castillo, for that. Anyway, he he was like, uh, yeah, like you should come to my band's practice. So I was like, sure. And I went. And so that ended up, I ended up joining that band that he asked me to go see. 
I really liked hanging out with these guys. They were um, just a little bit older. Um, the singer of that band went on to front a band called Hope Conspiracy. Um, Mark went on to uh, play in bands like uh, Bury Your Dead, Between the Buried and Me, Amir, etc. Um, and so without meaning to, I guess I asked the right questions at the right time, I found myself sort of uh, entrenched in my new friends were just like doing this cool band. And then um, their guitar player, you know, whatever flaked out or whatever happened there. <laughs> it's a funny story. <laughs> Kevin Baker will kill me for saying this, but he, I wonder if he remembers this. Kevin Baker is a big guy. And um, that was a singer of our band. It was a singer of the Hope Conspiracy, but later would become the singer of the Hope Conspiracy. And uh, <laughs> he kind of looked at me during their band practice and like kind of nodded towards the door. And I was like, uh, I guess Kevin wants me to go talk outside. <laughs> and uh, I was like really intimidated. And he's like, you're going to play guitar for this band. You know? And I go, <laughs> uh, you know, man, I was like, I'm like more into like emo and punk and stuff like that. Like this band was like straight up like late nineties metalcore. It was called piecemeal. And um, I was like, yeah, you know, and he just kind of paused and he looked at me again and he was like, you're going to play guitar for this band. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to play, I'm going to play guitar for this band. (laughs) (laughs) And um, (laughs) that's kind of how that went. And so I was just about to graduate high school at that point. And little did I know, it's like a month later or something. um, I went on my first tour. Um, It was an East coast run, like two weeks, you know, down to Florida, the usual loop. And it was crazy. And that's, I mean, I was still 17 at that point. I was really young for my grade. So I graduated when I was 17 and then I ended up on my first like, you know, East Coast run, half of the US tour that summer. Wow. So you got swept up in, into it just like that. Yeah. I didn't have a lot of choice. At least it, it didn't feel like I did. <laughs> no, I mean, I would have buckled too. I, I've I've seen Hope Conspiracy and I would not want to mess with Kevin. Yeah. I still recommend not messing with Kevin, truthfully. So yeah. <laughs> the bands that everybody went, I remember Piecemeal. I remember that name from back in the day, but yeah. the bands that everybody went on to be in, that's a pretty eclectic list of bands. Yeah, totally. Um, we started a band right so piecemeal broke up after that tour, the guitar player, the, the primary songwriting guitar player, Keith, um, he started a band called pictures of Gabriel and asked me to play in that as well. So I did. Um, at, at that point I was just say, apparently saying yes to like cool older guys in bands. And, uh, yeah, we, we <laughs> I played in pictures of Gabriel and right away we got a good booking agent. Matt Galley, uh, was our booking agent, uh, because he was roommates with our singer. Um, they lived on mission Hill in Boston and, you know, next thing I knew, I was playing with going to Canada, doing little tours, playing with Poison the Well and Converge. And we came down in, in Boston. We played with Glass Jaw. And, you know, I was, dude, I was just like 19. And it was a trip. Um, Death Wish had just formed as a label. And they signed us. Um, but we were a little bit young and a little bit of a powder keg. And so we broke up before... Death Wish could put out. I think they actually did find the demos and recently sort of in some weird way put it up digitally. I think anyway, that's what Trey, that one of the owners of Death Wish tells me. But yeah, I, so we broke up and it was really funny because I was like, oh, okay, well, like for the next, you know, it was so easy. I went to summer school, I met these dudes and then, you know, I'm playing like sold out shows with like these bands that are just like the legends of the time. And then some bands, some of those bands are still sort of legends, right? So I was like, this is crazy. So I was like, well, I'll start my own band. And then <laughs> through most of my 20s, I just started bands that no one really cared about. And I eventually started Defeater. And that was, I started that when I was 28. 
And that, yeah. that took off and ended up being sort of like the biggest band I ever did. Um, but I spent, you know, whatever, like eight years just being like, wait a minute. I thought, <laughs> I thought I'd just start a band and then, you know, I'm popular. <laughs> um, yeah. Like you, you got spoiled early. You, you, the first band, you're out there doing stuff. Second band, Pictures of Gabriel, you have a potential deal with Death Wish. You're playing with Converge. Glass Joel poisoned the well. You must have been like, "Oh, this shit is so easy." Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, usually I'll ask people like, "Oh, were you upset when the band broke up? Like, what did you do next?" I didn't even bother asking you that because I was like, "Oh, he's probably like, oh, I'll just do this again, no problem." Yep, that's what I thought. And so I did like an emo band, and then I did like um, in my mid twenties, I did a band called November Fifth, nineteen fifty-five, which was you know, when Doc Brown hit his head in Back to the Future and thus time travel was made possible. Um, uh. The band was as nerdy as the name. And we were just all like, sort of like Shai Hulud meets Mars Volta inspired. Like uh, we wanted to showcase how good at odd time signatures we really are. And uh, I think we did. Uh, and no one really cared. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think when you're trying to do that, right, it, it exactly. usually doesn't come off great. Mm-hmm. I yeah. agree. You start Defeater around the time you're 28 years old. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess in terms of like lifetime careers and music and all that stuff, that's kind of late. Did you think, did you want to make this a full-time? No. <laughs> did you want to be a full-time touring musician still? Did you envision this for Defeater in the beginning? No, I did not. Um, so Defeater was really born um, from me playing music with this this guy andy ironically we can talk about this we're in a new band um i think you're aware of but um death of a nation yeah exactly yeah um (laughs) but you know at the time i was playing music with andy he's um he's just really really gifted uh as a musician and we're making stuff and i was like wow this is really cool um defeater was i would say uh in at least the genesis of defeater was uh, a reaction to uh, my personal frustrations with being in a very complicated band that was a equal democracy. I know that sounds terrible, but sometimes, a lot of times, I feel like as a producer too, there's usually somebody with a really strong creative vision, and that person should probably be the songwriter and, by and large, kind of like lead the charge. Um, yes, and. You know, so I was coming out of this, I mean, I love these guys like to death, but like it was coming out of this sort of like, you know, democracy, we were playing three times a week, three hours per, you know, practice. It would take us like two months to write a song. It was just a long thing, dude. It just took forever. And so I was kind of like, man, like Andy's very good at drums. What if I just write stuff I like? Andy can just do his thing, which is psycho, you know, and um, we sort of build it around that. And so we, we found guys... And, you know, the general pitch was, I'm going to write all this stuff. Uh, I, at that point, I was already a producer. I was like, I'm going to record it. It's going to sound great. And, uh, you know, if you want to play this stuff, cool. And I think we put the right team together. And it, you know, <laughs> I had some wisdom because I remember how it felt when I did Pictures of Gabriel. And I was like, wow, okay. It's like stuff's kind of coming easy. Um, I felt that again. And I knew this time to be more patient and to nurture that because I, because then I had almost a decade of that being like very, very rare, right? So I was like, okay, I've seen, I've seen feast, I've seen famine, <laughs> and um, so this time I was like, uh, we have something here, and it was, it was almost like ironically funny where I couldn't believe I was like, oh, 
now it's going to work again. I'm like, kind of, I felt like I was like, I'm kind of done, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, but it started working and I knew that I knew how precious, precious that was. So I, I said, all right, here, you know, well, let's go, let's do it. So how quickly did things take off? I mean, by the time your first LP comes out, travels are, are things like really heating up? Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> Here's the cool thing about owning a recording studio and being a producer. Uh, travels was out before our first show. So we, ah. yeah, so we got to, in this, this label, this really cool label run by Seth Kevin called Top Shelf Records, said they'd put it out. Um, and, you know, I spent my 20s making records for uh, Equal Vision, Death Wish, Revelation, Bridge Nine, you know, Epitaph. So um, for that reason, it was like, oh, Jay's got a new band. You know, it was like, uh, it was like pre-networked. And that was really, really important. Um, so our first show, you know, was with Half Heart and Verse. Um, wow. Yeah. So that it was, that's a very different experience, right? So yeah, we play the show. It's a great show. That just sort of like put us in a good position to begin with. Um, I'm still proud of the way that Travel Sound, you know, I recorded that 14 years ago now. Yeah, it sounds great. Like, so the whole time, the whole time leading up to Defeater, are you working as a producer? Or are you learning that and recording records and all that stuff? Exactly. Yeah. So I started recording, um, right. I think I was 23. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was still 23. Um, and I ended up going full time as a producer when I was 25. Um, so, but in between 25 and 28, you know, that was my day to day. Um, I was cutting deals with bands and labels and doing everything I could to make sure I was relevant. And the other thing too, about being in your twenties, you know, I've got a son now and a wife and mortgages and shit, but (laughs) at the time I was just at the shows and I was just a a big part of the fabric in that way. Um, so, and I didn't have high expenses. So, you know, my thing was like, I was a computer science major. That's my background. And I really like came into this really great time where it was like, wow, like, you can make really great sounding records for, I don't know, one one hundredth of the price if you're good with technology. And technology be, has always been really, um, you know, my sweet spot. So I just kind of leaned on my strengths and I ended up, you know, being able to make better than your local engineer, <laughs> average engineer sounding records like pretty quickly because I've been a musician my whole life and I understood technology and um, I did. And then I also was fortunate. I would bug Kurt Ballou from Converge like nonstop. And, and I got to assist over at God City for a little while and had keys over there. Um, and I got to just pick his brain, right? So that's a really, really great resource for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so I just, you know, I, I feel like uh, I, I really got to accelerate in that way. And I was also like hyper obsessed um, to the point where like my friends had an intervention with me where they were like, yo, like you should do something like literally anything else except just like work on your recordings. And <laughs> for what it's worth, I told them, I understand where you're coming from, but no deal. And I just kept, <laughs> I just put my head down. And I just kept going. Um, so yeah. And so we, so anyway, we had, we ended up travels ended up being a great sounding product. Um, we had offers from a whole bunch of labels. Um, and at the time, you know, I thought, Bridge Nine was the right home. Well, Top Shelf was putting out the, the CD. We play a few shows, and the next thing you know, we have offers all over the place. So it was a very short amount of time on Top Shelf, but um, you know, we ended up on Bridge Nine pretty quickly. It's almost like you compress down the time it takes for a band to uh, expand and and get out there because you have the network already, and you can make a great sounding record right off the bat because that's what you do. You know how to do that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a huge advantage, right? As opposed, and like. 
you know, unlimited revisions, unlimited compositional additions. You know, it's, I can just, it's my baby. It's the thing at the time for sure that I cared the most about. So, you know, yeah, when I get an idea, you know, I have to wake up to go to pee at 3am. That is, you know, air quotes here, brilliant. That has to be on the record. Uh, I just don't go back to bed. You know, I just go make it happen on the record. Amazing. Yeah, I think you have to have that drive to really make it something. You know, I, I have that at times, not all the time, because, well, I'm 40 years old now, I'm tired, but sure. I do get that uh, lightning bolt in the middle of the night or uh, some idea, and then I have to sit there and just work on it until it's done. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, looking back, it, it it's really important, uh, for me anyway, I had no idea at the time, you know, I was just doing what felt right. And I was just leaning into what I loved. Um, and, you know, little did I know it, it set me up that even still today, all these years later, like, you know, I, I make art for a living and that feels really good. It's the best. Yeah. So Defeater, the songs, it's, it's like a concept band almost like the songs follow one kind of cohesive story. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that concept uh, was mine. Um, the time period and stuff uh, ended up being set by the singer. But the, the idea, well, you know, I think m- many of us have gone through, you know, our own set of trials and tribulations in our lives and stuff. And if we are empathetic individuals, hopefully, <laughs> we um, hopefully try to put ourselves in the shoes of other people. And I've found that to sort of be... I don't know what feels right for me um, is instead of like assuming that I'm right or whatever, I try to think about any conflict I've had in my life through the the struggles and the issues that probably the person that I'm having difficulty with is facing. And I took that concept and I thought, how cool would it be if we did a band where every record is more or less, it's their version of the same or basically the same story. So, so it's a family, right? So it's two brothers and a father and a mother. And what if, yeah, like, like what if we could kind of use that thing that I like to do emotionally and turn it into art. Now it's going to take like a decade for all these records to come out. Right. But, but like, so that like, and there's like all these crazy Tumblr posts and stuff where people like are weaving together this story, you know, it's really cool. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, which it feels great because, you know, it's kind of like a, it's a gamble. It's, it's a big ask of people like, Hey, do you want to wait like a decade to, <laughs> to hear how like all these different stories play into one another? Um, but yeah, I thought that was cool. I like starting any artistic project with, a general vision and purpose in mind. And I, I do that even with the records that I produce. I always tell the the artists that I work with, it's like, yo, we need, we've got different skill sets here, but we really need to align our, our Google maps, right? We need to be heading to the same direction and we might take different roads to get there, but we do want to get to the same place. Um, yeah. And so I took sort of that mentality and I applied it to the band more as a piece of art than it was anything else. I like that. It is a risk because not a lot of bands do that, but when you pull it off, like it can be something really great. What you're talking about with people piecing together the story on Tumblr and one of my favorite bands, they have all these interconnecting things and Coheed is a good example. They have like a continuous storyline, like when it works, it can really work. Yeah, cool. I mean, I 
I totally agree. So yeah, it, I don't know. At the time it just felt like, at the time I felt like, well, wouldn't we just be like another band if we just made another competent record for people to hear, you know, where we talk yeah. about ourselves and okay. Yeah, but it just didn't, it didn't seem, at least at the time, I don't know. You know it just didn't seem like the world needed more of those. Yeah. <laughs> That, I was thinking that same thing, you know, while researching about the band and I know a little bit about the band and just like, it, it's it's a good idea, you know, because there's plenty, there's a million bands out there of, you know, a guy or a person singing about the difficult times they went through and everything else. So the idea of this continuous story, I, I like it. It's a, I think it's neat. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And I think there's like, there's like sort of like, like embedded empathy in the fact that the story is being told through not through the eyes of while it's a character, it draws from our own experiences and it's told through the eyes of someone else. Like that, never mind like the fact that it is coming from these different things, just like the fact that the story is being told through somebody else's eyes, just sort of like imparts the concept of trying to be empathetic at all times, if possible. Can the story come from different perspectives of the family like will sometimes be from the father or sometimes be from the brothers like does it switch like that yeah so every record is through the eyes of a of a different member of the family i love that so you just you you just get a different angle of the story each time yep exactly and you'll even hear lyrics repeated etc because um you know those two characters happen to be at the same place at the same time so the fact that the words repeat record to record occasionally here and there it's just to give you a mile marker so you can tie yourself into exactly where you are in sort of the overall arc when you're sitting down and writing this how complicated does it get and how many people are involved because what you were talking about before i really agree with you where if a band is a democracy you don't really get anywhere and it takes two months to write one song um i i agree with uh the creative vision of one or two people, they get it done and everybody else jumps in to contribute to that. I think that's the way it works best. How did it work for Defeater in shaping this story? Yeah, I, I like to keep the teams lean and mean, everybody doing what they're best at, right? So um, I would say the the story, the story arc and what was going to happen there was, if not entirely, almost entirely um, a manifested just between the vocalist and myself, um, you know, uh, talking in the studio, talking in the van. Um, we knew, we knew before travels came out what this was going to be. Now, of course the details and, you know, as you think through something like, you know, kind of consider those thoughts drafts, but so as you think through these things, um, you refine them and they get better. But in terms of like, you know, what is this going to be? Um, that, you know, that was sort of set like back in 2008. Talk about the rise of the band. I mean, we have Travels come out on Top Shelf and then we have two records come out on Bridge Nine. Yes. Yeah, we did an EP and two LPs on Bridge Nine. Um, it, was, it was cool. It was weird. Um, we did an EP. Well, the first thing we did for Bridge Nine exclusively was this EP called Lost Ground. Uh, that came out um, and... We toured on that and the shows were getting better. We were just getting better opportunities and we could feel the excitement and that felt really good. I didn't know. I, <laughs> I didn't know how hot the, the pressure cooker. I don't know how pressure cookers work. They probably don't get hot. I didn't know. <laughs> I, didn't know I didn't know like, I didn't know what the anticipation level for empty days and sleepless nights was going to be. It ended up being crazy. So I had produced a band from Australia for Deathwish called Carpathian. They flew out. 
And then Carpathian and Defeater, we did a European tour. And the whole thing was like, okay, this will be the first tour on Empty Days and Sleepless Nights. Now, I saw social media. This is 2011, right? So 2011, 2012. I saw social media. Oh, 2011, for sure. I saw social media kind of like popping off. And I saw a lot of like Defeater tattoos. I saw a lot of covers. I saw this stuff going, but you know, I didn't know what like anything being viral or anything like that really was. I was like, well, that's cool. Wow, damn, another defeater tattoo. I was like, that's also cool. Um, yeah, our first show was in Munich. And <laughs> I'll be honest, man. I was um I was in the green room and it wasn't a crazy it was probably 350 cap or something. It was like nothing, right? Like that's like what we got booked for, because that's like at the time, that's like what we were worth. And there's always a lag, right? So it's like you sell out your 350 cap in two seconds. Well, like next thing you know, you're going to be playing like a 900 cap, right? But but like on that tour, we were playing like around that cap venue, anywhere from there to like 500. And <laughs> I remember Marty from Carpathian, he just came in. He's got Australian accent and I won't dare try to do one. But um, he came in, he was like, dude, you need to go to your fucking merch table. He's like, this is psycho. And I was like, Oh, our door's open. He's like, just go there. And so I like, <laughs> I, I went there and that was like, I'll just say this. We sold a lot of merch that night and almost all the shows on that tour sold out. And I was like, Oh, something's happening here. And so I don't know, man, it just kind of reminded me of the pictures of Gabriel days, but you know, even more so like where that could have gone. Now I was like, you know, personally I was like, okay, I remember what almost happened there. I think maybe that's happening here. Um, and it was just really, really cool. Um, so, yeah, really fortunate. It's got to be an amazing feeling because, I don't know, usually around that age, 30, 31, maybe you're thinking about leaving music. It's like, oh, why am I still on tour? It's not really happening the crowds aren't the same as they used to be, but for you, it's the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. I've always found that a touch ironic. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was 31. I mean, I wasn't quite 31. I was 30. That story I just told, I was 30. <laughs> I know that because we started recording Empty Days and Sleepless Nights on my 30th birthday, September 10th. Anyone want to send me some coffee, feel free. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah. And Andy, who I talked about before, who played drums for us, um, he showed up with... Uh, a crown and birthday beads that said 30 and a four loco. And that's how we got started. And so I was definitely 30 when that story happened. And I remember feeling like, fuck dude, like (laughs) this was supposed to happen like a decade ago. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you're not going to say no. Right. I mean, and I'm really lucky. Like, you know, I have a beautiful wife and child and awesome life now. And, you know, if I didn't keep going to Defeater, like we certainly never would have toured Australia, you know? Yeah. And I mean, to have that kind of reaction in Australia, of all places, amazing. Yeah, it's super cool. And yeah, I mean, that's how I met Jesse. My wife was, we played Australia and she worked for Resist Records, who is our uh, label and distributor in Australia. And um, we'd start talking and next thing you knew, boom. She's over here now? Yeah, I imported her pretty quickly. (laughs) (laughs) So things continue rising. You end up on Epitaph. I mean, that's huge. Yeah, that was crazy. Um, we, I got some messages uh, after we did Letters Home. Oh, no, sorry. After we did Empty Days and Sleepless Nights. And uh, it was like from someone I know over at Epitaph. And they basically were like, hey, how many more deal, How many records do you have to do with Bridge Nine? Um, 
And I was like, ah, I think we got to do one more. He's like, all right, talk to you in a few years. And I was like, fuck, dude. You know? <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. Yeah. And it was literally, we released the last record. And for what it's worth, I just want to say, um, I love Chris Wren. I love Bridgestone Records. Uh, that Bridgestone really is the formative home for Defeater. And mm-hmm. uh, anything I ever asked for, I mean, for Empty Days and Sleep is Nice, I asked Chris if our insert could be a 64 page long book, right? Oh my God. <laughs> so it'd be because I was so tied to this concept of the story and yeah. I, I wanted the product to really represent um, the art. And that's how I thought the art would be best represented. Um, and so we had like non-lyrical pages that helped people understand how the protagonist of that particular record got from song to song. And that was a connective tissue. And um, Chris at bridge nine always said yes. And I feel very, very grateful for that. And Chris really likes making things. Um, So I don't, this story is not to disparage Chris at all. Like I really, really like that dude. And I'm really, really grateful for um, our time over there and we still keep in touch. So it's all good. Uh, However, um, we were on warp tour and we had a very, very good first week on what was going to be our last uh, record for Bridge Nine. Uh, our management at the time said, <laughs> texted me <laughs> and said, Brett is going to call you. And I said, oh. He's <laughs> 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 like, yeah, I, this is looking good. And I was like, okay. And Now, Brett is uh, the person from Epitaph. So, Brett Gerwitz was a founding member of Bad Religion and owns Epitaph Records. Um, uh, yeah. And so <laughs> I knew around when he was going to call and I was, you know, at the time we were staying at some shady ass hotel and I was kind of like pacing behind a waffle house. Um, <laughs> and my phone rang and I was like, hello, you know, <laughs> he's like, Hey, what's up, man? It's Brett. I was like, Hey Brett, how are you doing? He's like, good. Hey man, I really like your band. I want to sign you guys. It was dude. It was like that. And I was like, Cool. That's awesome. We're like really big fans of the label. And he was like, that's really cool to hear, dude. Yeah. Like, yeah, we're in, you've got a lot of fans over here, man. Uh, you know, there's no urgency cause you just put out the last record, but, um, you know, let's do this. We, and we, we had been talking to, you know, a bunch of labels that were, you know, I guess what you would call a step up from bridge nine, um, <clears throat> just in terms of what they could offer financially and stuff. And yeah. Yeah. And, and so, <laughs> um, that was kind of that. And, you know, these deals take longer than you think they're going to take. And also there wasn't a ton of urgency because we had just put out a record. So I want to say it took almost a year to get the long form of the contract signed. But yeah, we, we were in constant communication and um, our lawyer beat up the record real good. And uh, Casey <laughs> from Iodine will tell you all about our lawyer. Um, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> he, has a, he has a good job beating up contracts. Um, yeah. And Brett actually called me. And I remember I was at, at my house and he was just like, bro, like, I want to get this deal done, but dude, you know, <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, um, we worked it out. Um, yeah. And so Defeater ended up on Epitaph and that was very cool and insane to me. I remember when I thought it might happen, we were playing a show in Texas on Warp Tour and Felicia, who's still over there, uh, who lives in Silver Lake, you know, I was like in, I don't know, San Antonio or something. I have no idea. But I look over and I see Felicia and I was like, Hey, you know, I'm like in the middle of playing the show. And, uh, after the show, I was like, what are you doing here? You know, she's like, I think you know what I'm doing here. And I was like, "Uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-huh. 
So, yeah, I mean, so I, I imagine you see things grow even more on Epitaph because uh, they have a much wider reach. We have a great record out, right? Well, one would think um, we didn't. Um, <clears throat> I have all kinds of thoughts about that release, but we were very excited. Tell me some of them. <laughs> sure. We were very excited to be on Epitaph. Um, and I think we had a shortened album cycle I, because I think we were really, we really wanted to put something out on that label. And I don't know, this is a little bit of wisdom talking again. Like I think the more records you do, particularly after the first couple, just keep taking more time before you put out the next one. Because yeah, while by the time you record those songs, they're already old hat to you, but then you record them and then maybe you're playing some of them live and then the record comes out. And then there's an absorption rate. And so when you're like the new, like sort of hot to trot band, um, people will absorb your stuff at a quicker rate. But, you know, that was LP4 for us. So uh, yeah, Travels, yeah, it was LP4. So, you know, at that point it was like, people had quite a bit of defeater to sink their teeth into. And we, there was problems with the vinyl pressing plants and stuff like that. And, you know, I remember I was in Denver um, on tour and our management called and they basically just called to say, you know, the numbers that we did first week are not the numbers that we did with bridge nine before. And also our goal numbers were like really high. Um, I learned a lot of lessons from that, but it put a lot of stress on the band too, right? Everybody had really high expectations. And I think when you have high expectations, tensions rise. People are, we're older, you know, all in our thirties and, you know, we're all in a hardcore band. Like, what are we doing? Um, you know what they say: expectations lead to future resentments. They sure do. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I would say that little statement kind of sums up that situation. And um, yeah, and so we, you know, didn't meet the marks that we were hoping to meet. You know, I don't know, man. I was like, looking back when I look at that record. I think it's very competent. Uh, my, and I, and I'm happy to critique my own art. My greatest fear is like putting out a B plus, right? It's like putting out something that's totally competent. There's not really anything wrong with it, but maybe it lacks the why, like, why would anyone care about this? And are we doing something to excite people? And I think, you know, as you get further deeper into your catalog, it's like, it's way harder to to meet that mark. Like, why is this exciting? Like, why would anyone care? Um, so there's good tracks on that record, but yeah. <laughs> Do you feel that the band didn't get to put the time into it that they should have for that one? No, I feel like, um, I feel like the, everything that the band had done up until that point was so awesome, but also we were burning the candle at both ends and I think that, how do I put this? To make great art collaboratively, it's a reflection of the relationships that exist at that period of time. And you really, you really need your relationships to authentically be in a great place in order to collaborate through art, which is difficult inherently, and make something that's emotionally able to resonate with others because what really rings true and what really resonates are these little moments 
in the writing and the recording process that get captured. And that's, that's, that's the number one thing for anything to be successful. It needs to draw an emotional resonance out of the listener. And if we are not doing that, how could we ever expect anyone to really care unless you're some diehard, you know, type of situation. And I think, you know, I think anyone who was a part of that process would say that the relationships at that point were not at uh, an ideal spot. And maybe that's just my take, but when I hear that record, I hear compromise, you know, and it's not a bad record. I hate to shit on it, but um, I don't hear the thing. I don't hear the intangible thing there. Yeah. And what you're saying makes sense because uh, that's when bands I think are the best. And when they resonate with the most people, like you're saying, like during the swell, we're all friends. It's all very exciting. We're hanging out together. We're on the same page mostly. And then you get to like the point where, oh, uh, each guy is going to go to the studio separately and everybody's busy doing their own thing. The emotional resonance is not there. Everybody's just plugging in their piece. We don't have the relationship like we did. And it sounds like maybe that was the case during Abandoned because like you said, you're burning the candle at both ends. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I don't even know how, like, I, I, first of all, I agree with you, but, um, I'm not even sure like how I would have re-engineered that situation looking at all of us who were there in that situation, because, uh, someone would have had to advocate to wait. We already felt like we were waiting. And I think it's different. Like if defeater had taken off when everybody was 20 (laughs) instead of 30, you know what I mean? Like we would have been younger and dumber and whatever, but you know, we also wouldn't be looking down the barrel of, Oh, do I want to start a family? Do I really want to be in a hardcore band as like my career? (laughs) You know, know, you'd be looking at that stuff very, very differently. Um, And that like sort of like naive young approach would have probably proved to be beneficial because we would have been, more in the same place, but you know, people are getting fucking married and, you know, buying houses and doing stuff. And, you know, there's just, you know, these outside pressures that come in and take something. uh, uh, Those constraints just, they just don't lend themselves to making amazing art. That makes sense. That makes sense. So you end up leaving a few months after Abandoned comes out, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what happened? Oh, I mean, a million things, but, um, it was just our, the, the tensions of, uh, of, of all the stuff and, you know, for what it's worth, like, you know, being on tour a lot is, is really, really hard on your social relationships. So, uh, I was, I was married. Um, and then, you know, I fucking, (laughs) I'm gone six months out of the year. Right. And, um, you know, that's, that, that puts a lot of pressure on, your marriage and your friends even. And, you know, um, I found out on tour that, uh, my marriage was ending. (laughs) Oh yeah. And so it's, I just, I personally kind of went into a bit of a tailspin and I, uh, didn't really, um, know how to handle it. I, I told my wife at the time, you know, Hey, I'll, uh, let me fly home. This is crazy. And I talked to the guys and they were really cool about it. I was like, they're like, we'll find a fill-in or we'll do what we have to do. But if you have to go home, go home. I said, okay, thank you. Um, and I called and I said, hey, like, uh, you know, I talked to the guys. Like, uh, I'm going to book a ticket tomorrow. We can afford it. I'll be home in like fucking 
24 to 36 hours, you know? And, um, yeah, she was, she just said, yeah, I don't want you to come home. Um, so I was like, okay. And then I don't know, it was the best and it was the worst, right? It was like, okay, I'm, I might've been the worst in the worst. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was on tour. Uh, I was not invited back home. I did. I was just like fucking felt like the ground was falling out from under me. And I didn't know what was going to happen when I got home. And so I was sort of like tangentializing between, okay, maybe this is for the best and holy shit, I need to save my marriage. And next thing I knew, you know, just like the communication between my ex-wife and I just got more and more limited um, to the point where her family (laughs) started reaching out to me and just saying like, hey, she really needs to reach out to you. And I was like, that would be nice, you know? (laughs) Um, And we played this fest in the Czech Republic. And uh, yeah, I I got a text. It was really strange. I just got a text from her after like weeks, you know, of me not being like oppressive, but you know, I had sent a voicemail. I'd sent sent some texts, you know, like, Hey, what's up? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And um, it just said, you can call now. And I was in like in a field in the Czech Republic. And I was like, okay, how do I do this? So I walked, I think it was like two miles to a McDonald's parking lot so I could steal Wi-Fi. And um, yeah, I called. Um, and more or less, it was just like, yo, uh, I'm moving out. I won't be here when you get back. I'm taking the dog. And that's it. And I was like, okay. It was I'm a calm dude, <laughs> like externally, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which puts a ton of pressure on me internally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, I remember just like playing that show. And then we had this RV that we were touring in. I just went to my bunk and I was like, bye. <laughs> 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 and just did that. And I think, you know, I don't know for what it's worth. I think she was right. You know, I think that uh, we probably... I see things through like crazy. So I probably would have seen anything through and yeah, I think she was probably right to make that call, but that was very difficult for me to acknowledge at the time. Anyway, I probably, I got a little weird introverted and listen, I saw a bunch through the course, you know, you're in a band with, with the guys for a long time. You see them go through relationships and breakups and yeah, uh, you know, you kind of saw most of the crew at some point or another, go through a bit of a spiral. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, you know, mine just sort of ended with, uh, you know, it being a wrap. And I think they knew where I was at and we were just in different places. I, um, I didn't really want to tour as much as we were touring. And based on the numbers that we did on Epitaph originally, I didn't understand why we would be doing that, but we were, we just saw it differently. And, and I don't know what to say about that. Um, so it, it made sense. And since then, you know, like things have been honestly on the up. Um, I, you know, shit's good, dude. Like fucking my wife rules, Jesse. Like I said, I imported an Australian. We have a wonderful child. Um, businesses are going really well. Um, so yeah, like, you know, maybe sometimes the people around you can see things that are difficult for you to see. So do you think ultimately it was the right choice to leave the band to wander into this new life, whatever it ends up being, you weren't sure at the time? Well, you know, the thing was, it, it wasn't that much of a new life, you know, because every time I came home from tour, I was producing bands. And I really liked doing that. Um, and I'll say this too, and I think it showed sort of in my, 
I don't know, probably in my <laughs> attitude or something was like touring was always for me, like sort of the unfortunate side effect of, of creating great art. And it was very flattering that we got to go do this stuff, but also at the same time, like, you know, <laughs> as you get older, it's like, it's just, it was less cool. And, and, and I love making great art and I love making things that are impactful. And that's probably why I love being a producer so much. Um, and I, I, I do love playing shows too, but the other 23 hours of the day are like a bit of a slog. <laughs> yeah. And as you're getting closer to 40, yeah. I don't know how people still do it into their 40s and 50s, honestly. Yeah. I mean, the, the only way I've seen it happen is you get to a point where it's comfortable. So, you know, you're, I, I'm, I'm really good friends with the dudes in August Burns Red, right? So they, um, you know, they've been touring in a bus for a long time. And so for them, they've got this sort of community. I've they've invited me on the bus countless nights, and I've sort of lived that life with them to some extent. And they're wonderful people. And dude, they're going to watch football. They're going to drink a craft beer, and there's going to be lots of laughs. And then the moment anyone is, you know, the bus is already in motion, going to Louisville or wherever we're going, Tempe, you know. And it's like, all right, hey guys, I'm tired. It's no burden on the on the crew. There's no like bags to lug in and out. It's like, eh, I'm just going to my bunk. You know, I'm going to go use this terrible little bathroom that's on the bus and I'm going to go to my bunk. And when I wake up, I will be in some city. I'll find coffee. I'll find a gym and we'll play another show tomorrow. And so if you can do it on that level, I can see how you do it for a really long time. That's provided, of course, that the whatever your social situation is back home, that's provided that that is um, in good standing. It's where things get tricky is when every day that goes by on a tour, uh, <laughs> you know, you you feel like something's eroding back home that you want to protect. That can create a, a bit of a cognitive dissonance that's tough to handle. Yeah, relationship stuff is extremely difficult for me. And I've never been married, so I'm assuming that adds a whole extra layer to things but you know in relationships when things haven't been great or where i'm trying to work through something and i can't uh, i feel completely hopeless i feel like i'm spinning out in outer space yeah i mean <clears throat> that's probably partly if not <laughs> largely biological right like um i i mean we can get scientific here but like basically everything uh everything that has any semblance of life in the universe as far as we can tell wants to replicate and our way of replicating is forming these bonds and raising children and different organisms and species do it differently. But, you know, it does feel like it really tugs at, I don't know, like really, really deep seated parts of what it is to be a human being when we have these expectations and we want to do that stuff and, and it's, it's falling away. I mean, you know, hap, being in, in, in a, positive relationship it's like you can cut like if you go through you can go through hell and back but if you're going through hell and back with your partner that that's like your team and it feels great whereas like if you're going through hell and back and the part of your hell is like your partner like taking off or whatever <laughs> yeah you know it's like oh my yeah. god the worst yeah it's the worst hey i'm single for a reason well there you go you heard it. You heard it here <laughs> first, guys or, or gals, both. I don't know. However, you people, yeah. whoever's out there, <laughs> literally someone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you know, I uh, I actually saw Defeater last year at Furnace Fest in 2021, 
And I got really grabbed by the song Atonement. I know it wasn't you up there playing it, but you recorded that song. Yeah, I wrote and recorded that, yeah. Yeah, so, and I just, that song stuck in my head, and I came home, and I kept skipping through every track until I found it, and then I was like, this is a fucking good song, and that's how I kind of discovered the band and dug into more of the discography. Oh, cool. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, it's good stuff. Thanks. You're out of Defeater now. What did you do? You focus on producing and recording full-time? Yeah, I mean, you know... Every, the way the chips fell there was like, you know, Jesse, I, my wife, uh, now moved out here from Australia. And so we had all kinds of things to figure out there. It was like visas and green cards and blah, 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 you know, all the stuff. And, um, we did that. And I knew I've known that I wanted to be a father. Um, and I would say that's still by and far the coolest thing I've ever done. Um, and, yeah. And so Jesse wanted to do that with me as well. So we, <laughs> we fucking went for it, man. <laughs> we just, we just knew that we wanted to be together and nothing was going to stop that. And we knew that we wanted to start a family. Nothing was going to stop that either. Um, so we did, and we just did all those things. And there's a lot that goes along with that. It's, it's, it's a lot. Uh, I've started, <laughs> so many subsequent businesses from just being a producer out of the pure sheer terror that like professional punk guy is not necessarily the most stable foundation <laughs> to have a family and raise a kid. Um, yeah. And so I, um, I, you know, I started buying multifamily real estate. Um, I started some more companies I kept producing and just to make sure that my family is in a good spot. And that has been awesome. Um, eventually, I found space enough, honestly, with the occur- encouragement of Jesse to uh, start more musical endeavors. So that's Death of a Nation. And it was New Year's Eve in 2016. And yeah, I we're driving back from Andy's parents' house where we did a great New Year's Eve that night. <laughs> and I was kind of like, you know, if I was going to start a band, I think it would be Andy. And I've always loved the singer versus vocals. I did a record for them. It's still one of my favorite records I ever did. And with a little encouragement, I sent a couple texts. And I think before the end of that drive, I had a band. Very nice. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I try to, when we form these teams and knowing that we're going to create art together, like based on the experience and wisdom, that they've gained over the years. Um, I want everybody, (laughs) here's sort of the rub. I want everybody that I interact with artistically to have something really, really special to bring to the table. (laughs) Having said that, a lot of artists that do have um, (laughs) the je ne sais quoi (laughs) um, are like sort of nightmares in their own regard. So I'm probably included (laughs) in that. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it's like, super, super intelligent and talented people, (laughs) but also like (laughs) totally eccentric, you know? And (laughs) yeah, they always go hand in hand. That's just the way it is. Yeah. I just think we see the world differently. Um, Yeah. Like I have, I, that's why I'll never, I used to have a co-host for the podcast and that's why I'll never bring someone else in on a permanent basis because I know I'm a pain in the ass. Like, you know, if you, if you're if you're just on time, that's late. 
you know, there, there's <laughs> there's ways to do this shit. There's a right way. There's a wrong way. And the thought of like sitting down with someone and having to go through all that, I can't do it. I don't. I don't want to like introduce that element to a friendship or make things weird. It's just. It's just too much. Yeah. Uh, I can resonate with that, and, and I'm yeah. sorry that I was ten minutes late for the podcast. By the way, oh yeah. no, no, you were you were on time. We just had uh, to get the perfect audio. We set. had some tech diff. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. And and so you know where where it is now. I was like, all right, like what's what's the most important thing I can do, and that is make the best possible art possible. Um, that's what I'm interested in doing, and so um, I only want to work with people that I think have this unquantifiable, I don't know, extra thing that, that, that makes everything they do very special. And so for death of a nation, that's what I think we've really put together. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you've been working in this business a long time. You can see that you can see that thing and you can probably anticipate who's going to work together and who's not going to work together. Yeah. It takes me about one second these days. Me too. Yep. Me too. So, I mean, you've had quite a career as a producer as well. How did you convince Kurt to let you work with him? Now, I, I assume he is in high demand. Sure, of course, yeah. Um, I would say absolute abuse of uh, AOL Instant Messenger at the time. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, and uh, we're talking about Kurt Ballou at uh, God City Studios yeah, yeah. for the uh, for the audience. Yeah, Kurt's, I mean, I think most people know Kurt's a genius. Um, yes. And... Uh, you know, and I had recorded with him a couple of times. He was my introduction to the studio space in a real ish way where I really fell in love with everything. So everybody obviously reveres or not everyone, but so many people, especially up here in Boston, revere converge. Um, yeah. You know, it was just cool. Um, and I remember when he built his spot in Salem, all that stuff, I, uh, just would send him mixes and <laughs> I love Kurt to tell can be <laughs> blunt, you know, but he's just really smart. And so he'd be like, why is there so much low mid range? And your snare could be more compressed. You know, <laughs> I was like, yeah, cool, cool, cool. And, you know, I didn't take it offensively at all. I don't care about the cadence. I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. And so I'd, I'd really dig into that stuff and really try hard. Um, I think I just got my stuff to a point where I'd send him something. And he'd be like, this is the best thing you've sent me. And I'm like, thank you. You know, <laughs> he's like, cool. And then, I didn't ask her anything just out of the blue. He was like, you know, Hey, I've got this, um, I've got a band and the label needs this done ASAP. I don't have a ton of time. Are you willing to track X, Y, and Z for this? I'm going to give you gear and uh, I'm going to show you how I want this tracked, but you're going to have to do it and you're gonna have to make sure the takes are good. Um, and then I'll, I'll recompile all this together and I'll do a mix. And I said, of course. Um, and so that's how it started. And yeah, and then also I was using God City um, as a drum room for Shipwreck versus Cruel Hand, like you know all those like late two thousands hardcore bands, and yeah, you know we just became homies, and um, yeah, and then I got to you know assist him over there a little bit and have keys, and yeah, he's he's a really really remarkable individual. Um, so yeah, uh, that's kind of how that all unfolded. And that's good that he was so direct with you. And, and I think that's how you really learn. It's painful sometimes because uh, our ego takes a bruising, but that's how you learn. Oh, I completely agree. And if I'm grateful for anything, I, I think I'm grateful for the fact that uh, w it's, it's tough to bruise my ego. You know, I just, I just really want to learn. 
That's good. I I have a very uh, thin ego. It's very easy to bruise. (laughs) And uh, but hey, listen, I'm learning. It's all good. Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, best of luck with that. (laughs) It's tough. (laughs) So you produced the final Bane record, yes? I did. How was that? That must have been pretty legendary. Yeah. So I had done an EP for them, um, and it went pretty well. (laughs) We had done some touring with them. Actually, met Jesse, my wife, on a, a Bane tour. The final Australian band tour, which is after I produced the last record. But um, yeah, I became somewhat close with those guys. I would say at this point, quite close with a bunch of them. And <laughs> I we were playing uh, This Is Hardcore in Philly. And, you know, <laughs> to be honest, uh, it was a long day. I was a little buzzed. <laughs> ah. Yeah, I was a little buzzed. And I was walking up these back steps that go to the backstage of that venue. As I'm walking up, Zach... Uh, one of the guitar players um, and also the singer of Silent Drive and stuff um, <laughs> walks out and we bump into each other and we're, I'd say we're pretty big fans of one another. And he's like, yo, and I was like, Hey, what's up, dude? And he was like, we're doing a final band record. I want you to record it. And I was like, Oh, of course. Wow. Yeah, definitely. And he goes, open your calendar. <laughs> and I go, oh, it's like that. And um, <laughs> yeah, so I opened my calendar and we just found, um, we found a time, you know, he's like, all right, let's do it then. You know, I'll hit up the label. We'll get you to deposit. Let's do this. And so I was like, what? dude, I literally, it was like a one minute or less thing. And I was just like, ah, you know, I just like walked into the back of the venue. Like I'm doing the last Bane LP. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, That's amazing that he had you open the calendar right there to to book it because usually it's like oh let's work on this okay and then you never hear from them again or it's a year later yeah I totally agree he clearly wasn't messing around so um, <laughs> yeah uh, that was it it was it was booked and I remember just thinking to myself like yeah this is cool for me but like I know like for for those who love Bane they love Bane and I know how important that band was for hardcore. I remember before I was even part of, before I was anyone, you know, going to see Saves a Day, Pieball, Bane, you know what I mean? And just, yeah. Yeah. And just seeing that and being like, oh, this is a thing. Um, and it just felt really cool that me of like, gangly, skinny, zit faced me of previous years, like going to this show and feeling like a total loser is now like a, a really important enough piece of that fabric. It, it felt awesome. I love stuff like that. I love stories like that because that was me going to shows. I, all Everyone in these bands that I looked up to just felt so much older and like they were on a different planet. But now that I've spoken to all of them on this show, I realized we were pretty close in age and we were all just doing the same thing, whatever, you know, trying to make it in a band or putting something together or whatever it is. And some people just took it further than others. Yeah. Didn't, did you have Zach on the show? Yes. I had Zach on uh, fairly recently. Yeah. I love him. He's a really, really nice guy. Did you do the, uh, the silent drive record too? I did. The latest one. Yeah. That that's such a good record. <laughs> Thanks dude. <laughs> yeah. And like, uh, I don't, honestly, I usually don't pay attention to production too much because I'm not like a huge production guy, even though I do audio recording and I've made like some stuff here and there, but that record sounds incredible. Oh, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I just listened to it again recently because uh, the single got stuck in my head and it's just really good. Yeah, I would say both with Bane and Silent Drive, you know, their previous efforts were recorded um, one was Brian McTurnan, who's amazing. And another one 
was Bill Stevenson. Also amazing. Uh, and so, you know, legends. Yeah, honestly. And so now it's like up to me. <laughs> um, so I made damn sure those records sounded very good. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 Well, you succeeded. Thank you. I, I can almost hear your imprint now because you did. Uh, did you do the latest Darling Fire record? Yes. Yeah. And that production is just unbelievable. Again, you know, when, when I heard that first single, Machina, I think it's called, yep. come out and the chorus kicks in, I got like literal chills and I was just like, holy shit. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. Um, like I said, I was hyper obsessive with this stuff. I guess I still am. Um, and I really, I, I really love making records from both a technical, but also emotional standpoint. And the, uh, <clears throat> the aim, if you will, is always to try to get people to react emotionally and get the, get the hairs on the, on their arms standing up and, and, and make something that is memorable for everybody. Yeah. And it's good that you're obsessive because I'm the same way. I want to put as much effort as humanly possible into everything that I'm doing, especially this podcast. Like I, I want to have the best conversation. I want to have the best energy. I want to put everything into this because it would be a disservice to the person I'm talking to if I just kind of half-assed it and wandered through everything. Like I'm doing them a disservice and I'm doing myself a disservice. So I'm with you. I'm, I want to put everything into it. Yeah, man. I mean, you're doing a great job, first of all. <laughs> and also, um, yeah, I, I just don't know why anyone would do anything unless they actually cared. Yeah, yeah. I guess uh, I guess if you're like a huge name and you just get super comfortable, you can just kind of go into a room and press a button and people are still happy to quote unquote work with you and you get yeah, to stamp your name on it and everybody's happy. I guess, but I don't really think that's how like long lasting legends are born or exist. I think that there's an element that ex- there's an element of that excitement. If, if not just an element, there's probably as much excitement, you know, dude, I spent all day today working with mags. I still, dude, I'm fucking recording vocals. I am still like bobbing my goddamn head, like a lunatic. <laughs> you could talk to like Jolie from the darling fire. I like, she's doing vocals and I mean, I'm just so invested. Um, and I just, I think it's a beautiful gift that I just have the temperament to be so invested and to care so much about anything. And this is a, this is a wonderful thing for, for those cares to be deployed on. I love it. You're also developing a new AI for mastering. Is that true? Developed. Developed. Tell us about this. Yeah. So yeah, everyone who listens to this, go to upload your demos and be wowed. Um, it's, <laughs> so I like puns. <laughs> it's it's called Master.io M A A S T R. Ah, like, I like that. Kind of like um, <laughs> like like Tumblr, but with my name, like Master.io. Uh, um, we we picked the .io uh, because it, it. I was like, oh, it kind of sounds like audio, like in out, you know. And um, yeah, we've got uh, the best sounding uh, AI mastering uh, in the world. And, uh, it's because it's born from, uh, myself and Joe Tagliferro, who's also a genius. Um, and we care as much about that as we care about anything else that we've talked about tonight. Um, and what we, our mission sort of is, is to empower people. And so, so there's something that's really cool that takes place when you remove barriers and artists are just fucking making music. And Billie Eilish is like a, a really good example of this, right? Like she's winning Grammys, like being produced by her brother in her bedroom. Um, it's 
it, it it's that same thing I talked about earlier in the podcast. It's that emotional intangibility that actually resonates with people. The like, the why would I care, right? So that's awesome. However, developing very <laughs> elaborate and useful uh, instincts when it comes to uh, how things sonically should translate to different styles of playback systems is like one of the nerdiest endeavors anyone could sort of take. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's one that I'm, I'm fairly well equipped to take. So we created a place where people can uh, literally just make an account, upload stuff. And I guarantee that your stuff will sound way better and you'll probably be even more excited and hype on your stuff after you upload it. If, for those, the uninitiated, the last part of making a record is called mastering. And mastering essentially is you take the mix that came off the board, out of the computer, whatever it was, you take the mix and you give it to someone typically who's been in the industry for a really long time, typically quite expensive, uh, backed up. Uh, you have to email them, pay a deposit, got to wait for the response. You got to do the whole thing and get your master back. And hopefully uh, you really like it. And hopefully you don't have a lot of revisions. Um, yeah. Through technology, we've developed a way to do that in just a couple minutes. You take your mix, you upload it. <laughs> Our proprietary AI um, takes a look at it. On, I could super nerd out on this stuff, but I would bore your listeners to death. But I'll just say, <laughs> um, we look at it through a bunch of different lenses. And through those lenses, we essentially um, do what a mastering engineer does, but we do it at a very minimal fraction of the cost and we do it really, really fast. And so, you know, we talked earlier about like that, like that moment at 3 a.m. where you get that idea and you just have to add something to the song. Well, imagine that happened after you got your master's back or whatever it is. Well, now you don't have to worry about that. Now you can have that idea. You can add it to your song. And then if you want to hear what like the final version, like the mastered version of your vision would be, you just got to drag and drop. And so it's a, a bit of a disruptive <laughs> technology and I understand that. But I just really want to empower artists to make emotionally compelling pieces. And I think this really does that. And so I'm really, really proud of what we've done with the team. So is it out there? Is it launched? Can we use it? Please use it. Yeah. Um, it is launched and we're growing every month. Um, and it is, like I said, M-A-A-S-T-R.io. Just make an account and throw some stuff at it. And I think you'll love it. So it, in we've got nine different sort of sonic setting algorithms. They're not presets. It's not like we always do the same thing, but it's just nine different ways to tweak our artificial intelligence. Um, in case, you know, some people like brighter stuff and some people like darker stuff, but ultimately you're going to get a great product every time. It just depends on what type of great product you would like to get. So yeah, you can totally go there and please do um, throw some stuff at it. I dare, I dare anyone to test it out. I'm curious to test it out here. Since I have you here, Jay, I want to ask a question. Uh, this is me thinking about the future. I did an EP in 2018. Uh, it was recorded in, I don't know, one of these audio programs, Logic, Ableton, one of these. I don't know. I don't have any of the masters or the individual tracking or any of that. Do I need all that stuff to like do a remix or a remaster or something like that? Do you have the mixes? I don't know. <laughs> what do you ha what do you have <laughs> i just have like wave files or mp3s or something yeah but have those wave files wave files uh, is fine but have they been mastered uh yes okay well i wouldn't uh i 
you can, but you're going to get diminished results. Um, re-uploading mastered files to yet another mastering. It, it, the best use case is for anyone who has mixes. So basically, the, the process of production is you know you write your song, you go into the studio, you track it. That's the tracking phase. You usually usually have a producer there, and then you get into mixing and then you get your mixes back. And so those are your final mix deliverables. Now that last piece is, okay, we have our mixes now. Who's going to, who, and at this point, I guess, what is going to master this? So if you have mixes, you should throw the mixes at monster.io. And the, and the reason for that is um, if you if you throw masters at it, you can. Um, our uh, algorithm will still treat them pretty well. And I think you'll still be happier probably with the results that you had beforehand but to optimally you know get the most out of it you'd want to like right at that mix stage we're like cool we have mixes it's dude, just toss them and it'll be great i understand now so i'm gonna have to go back and see if mixes exist because i i didn't back any of that stuff up i would like instrumentals i would like mixes and i i just didn't you know it was the first time i recorded something in a long time so i wasn't thinking about all that yeah and the other thing too is like you know like so many people are producing amazing content from you know like really humble places you know their bedrooms or whatever it is and it's like you know with macbooks and logic and great sample libraries and virtual instruments and all of that stuff like all of those things are really really great and great sounding tools for people to create art and the thing (laughs) that most of them none of them have is like they can get you to the creative art place but they can't get you to the, would I upload this to Spotify place? And that's what Monster really facilitates. You just drag and drop. And now you have something that you can be absolutely sure will sound great in your car. It'll sound great in your earbuds, on your MacBook or whatever you got. Um, And we handle all of that like super nerdy stuff for you. And so all you as the artist have to worry about is just making something cool and creative. Amazing. I love it. I got to check it out. Please do. Well, let's talk about what we've got coming up. Now, we have Master, so we want to try uploading some tracks to there and seeing what we can do with uh, the things that we've recorded and pieced together. What do we have coming up with Death of a Nation? Yeah, I guess this is as good as a podcast to announce on as any. So, obviously, I did do the Darling Fire record for Iodine. Um, and I've, I've, I've come to know Casey pretty well. I think that uh, we have a, a really great relationship. I really, really like that guy. Um, and I had been thinking about doing a new LP for the band and actually making something cool. And again, hats off to my wife for really pushing me to, uh, do this. You know, I make all this art for other people and, uh, she's, you know, I've got all these songs that I've been kicking around. So it was, it was great. Um, anyway, uh, I talked to Casey about it, you know, and we are doing, we're starting tracking an LP, uh, in January. Uh, we rented, this really cool place. It's called the Pale Moon Ranch. It's my friend um, Alex Estrada, who used to play in a band called Silver Snakes. He bought this house. It's in the on the the other side of the mountains, on the east side of the mountains uh, near LA, about two hours from LA. And it's this tiny little town where they have to get water delivered. It's super remote, and it's in the desert. And he turned the whole house, nineteen foot ceilings, panoramic views, the whole thing into a studio. So what, what I'm doing is I'm hijacking 
Andy and myself, um, and one of my assistants, uh, Dave Alcan, who's wonderful. Um, we're, we're flying to the desert in January and we're going to live in the desert and we're going to just put our heads down and get to work. Um, the songs are primarily written, but I know there's a lot of work left to do. And it's just this thing where it's like, it's in utero, right? <laughs> it's like, take us to the woods, take us to the desert, just isolate us. And so there's no distractions other than we have one job here, and that is to make something very, very sick. So are you telling me, Jay, that we're going to be label mates? <laughs> I might be, yeah. <laughs> wow. That would be exciting. Yeah, that's what it, that's that's how I understand it myself anyway. Okay, so that's the plan. That's the plan. Yep. That sounds good. What else do you got coming out? Any uh, records that you worked on that you're excited about or anything else? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm primarily very excited for this Mags record that I'm working on right now. You know, he's he's doing great. I just saw him at the Paradise in Boston. It's like a 900, 1100 cap club. It was packed. Um, he stole the show. Um, I mean, he's just a really, really talented artist. And I think we're making a really special record here. Um, and so, you know, he's doing, he's doing great. He's got like something like in the neighborhood of like, you know, 350 to 400,000 monthly Spotify listeners. He's really resonating. When I went and saw the show, there's like people showed up and all this, these cool t-shirts and stuff that were just like, I'm here for Elliot Mags and all this stuff. And so I really believe in him as an artist and I reached out to him um, to work together and he was into it. So we started with a single, that single went really well. And now we're doing the whole LP together. So um, he's literally at the studio right now. And tomorrow morning when I wake up, we're digging back in. Amazing. I love it. Well, Jay, I mean, you've done so much over the years. You're still doing a lot and it sounds like you're doing great. I want to wish you continued good luck and say thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Oh, absolute pleasure. Um, so yeah, thanks for having me and uh, looking forward to this coming out and yeah. And there you have it, Jay Moss. That was an incredible conversation. It was great to hear from Jay about everything he's doing, and he's doing a lot. He got an early start in bands. He got swept up into it. You know, the whole story of how Defeater got started and that whole saga was pretty compelling stuff. And he is out of the band now, but now he's focusing full-time on his production work. And boy, is he good. I mean, if you haven't heard... The last Bean record, the latest Silent Drive record, the latest Darling Fire record. The guy's got the chops. There's no denying it. And this software he's developed, unbelievable. Unbelievable. I really want to try it myself. I'm going to, when my band has demo recordings or mixes, I guess, I need mixes, I'm going to try it out. I want to see what's going on. Really good to talk to Jay. I wish him continued success. Thank you, Jay, so much for coming on the show. So let's talk about how we are doing, huh? A lot has been going on. I haven't checked in with everybody since before Thanksgiving, I think. And Thanksgiving this year, I opted out of going to see my family. I just didn't feel like I could do it. Um, I don't know. I've been a little extra anxious lately, and holidays are really hard for me. It's hard to be around a lot of people. And it's especially hard to be around a lot of people drinking. And there was going to be a lot of people at my parents' house this year. 
And, you know, sometimes people have drinks and it can get a little rowdy. And I just, it's uncomfortable for me for a lot of reasons. And also partly because I'm in recovery, as you know. So I just told my mom, look, I'm not going to be able to make it this year, but I'll be down for Christmas. And she was cool with that. And I don't think I've ever revealed this on the show before. You could probably guess, but I'm going to tell you that my brand of recovery is 12-step. I got into 12-step meetings. I go to them regularly. I do service at them. That is the only thing I've tried in my life that has managed to keep me clean. So I'm, I'm involved in that community, and I opted to do service on Thanksgiving. The brand of 12-step that I'm involved with, they do a Thanksgiving marathon. It lasts all day. They also do a New Year's Eve marathon and a New Year's Day marathon. I, they do a marathons for a, like a lot of the holidays around this time. So I opted to do service at the Thanksgiving Day marathon. And it was nice to stay local in New York City because the city clears out. It's kind of quiet and there's not too many people on the streets. So I went to the marathon. I sat through a meeting. I chaired a meeting. I spoke at a meeting. And then I stayed and listened to one more speaker. So I was there for maybe like four and a half, five hours. So by the time I left there, I felt like a million dollars. It was awesome. It was awesome to be able to give back. And yeah, so that that's what I did on Thanksgiving. Oh, and then I came home and watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I heard Quentin Tarantino on the Howard Stern show recently. He's always a good guest. Love hearing that guy talk. And he mentioned in the interview at one point that that's his favorite screenplay that he's written out of all of them. And then I remember thinking, oh, yeah, I haven't seen that movie yet. So I watched it and I really enjoyed it. You know, it was, uh, there wasn't a lot of, I guess the plot was kind of slow moving in the beginning. So I was like, uh oh, is this going to be one of those movies that's like really self indulgent and nothing actually happens and people just kind of talk? And, you know, that's cool sometimes, I guess. But, of course, the plot shaped out and major things happened. And there was a, I won't spoil it for you in case you didn't see it, but there was a over-the-top Quentin Tarantino ending that only he could pull off. And I really liked it. And I think Brad Pitt was the highlight of the movie. You know, even though his character was not the uh, most moral person in the world, everybody should have a friend like that. Great movie. Highly recommended. So that was my Thanksgiving. I also had off the entire week. And I spent most of that week playing Warzone 2. Who has played this? Who has seen this? What do you think of it? Now, I'm still on the fence. I do like it. I do like it. I was afraid of the backpack system and picking stuff up and putting it down. I was afraid it was going to be too complicated. I was afraid of the movement being gone, the slide canceling and the stimming and the running through doors. Really, I, I didn't do a ton of that, but... I don't know. I was nervous. I was nervous, but I like the game. I like the mechanics. I played it a lot. And so here's my ranking. Here's my review. I like it. I do think the time to kill needs to be adjusted because you can't react. If someone gets the drop on you and they start shooting you even one bullet before you start shooting them, you're dead. Most games I drop in and I just get instantly deleted and then I end up in the new gulag, which I hate. I hate the new gulag. I hate the two-person gulag. You always have a pistol. 
and I always lose. I probably lose nine out of 10 gulags. Really hate it. Would like just the one-on-one to come back and maybe mix in some other guns other than pistols so that I actually win sometimes. But as far as the map, Al-Mazra, I like it. There is some Verdansk-style buildings in there. I like those big radio towers. I like those three-story factories that are back. It's a nice throwback. I like the water mechanics. I would just like to live longer. Maybe I need to get better, uh, but I do think the time to kill needs to be raised a bit, and I think I need to slow down. I'm just running through the map, running through buildings brazenly, and, uh, you know, I, I got to take off auto tax sprint. I got to be a little more methodical. I got to play the edge of the circle. And I, I just need to get more strategic, I think. You know, I was watching one of my favorite Warzone streamers, Iron, and that's how he plays. And that's how I'm going to try to play. By the way, you know, I was riding high on looking at all the statistics from the new scene podcast Spotify wrapped and things are looking really good. And I was like, yeah, awesome. And then the next day I'm sitting on Twitch while I'm working. And, you know, I was just typing messages into the chat, whatever, interacting with people. And I got recognized in the chat. Someone was like, oh, new scene, you're here. And I was like, yes, I love this stream. So shout out to you, Jim, if you're listening. Iron is a great streamer. I'm in there all the time. But yeah, in terms of how the new map ranks against everything else here, let me give you a ranking. I'm putting Rebirth Island at number one. I played Rebirth more than anything else. I loved it. It was great. Rebirth number one, Verdansk number two, Almazra number three, and Caldera number four. Didn't play a ton of Caldera, never fell in love with it. And Fortune's Keep, I'm not going to put in the ranking because, I don't know, it's another Rebirth map and it's not as good. It was good. It was good. I didn't play a ton, but I played enough. So there it is. There's my ranking. I'm looking forward to seeing what changes they'll make to Warzone 2. I will invest more time into it because I like it. I like it more than Caldera and I feel compelled to. So there you go. Uh, Otherwise, everything is going good here. It's business as usual at the new scene. A lot of great interviews coming up. A lot of great guest co-hosts coming up. You know, I will be churning out the content as much as I can, as often as I can. But for the foreseeable future, you can look forward to a new episode of this show every week. We've got a really good one coming up next week, so strap in. Okay, so I've been meaning to end the show with this song for a while, and now I finally remember to do it. A while ago, I went to the Iodine tour that came through Brooklyn. One Line Drawing played, Joe McMahon from Smoker Fire played, Her Head's on Fire played, and the whole show was great. I was really taken by Joe McMahon's set. He played an acoustic version of the song, It All Went Black, and it's really good. So I pulled this from People of Punk Rock on YouTube, and I will end the show with it. I hope you enjoy it. That's it for this week. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next time.
time has passed 